morning, do keep your Bibles open, please, at Psalm 145. What we've been doing over the summer is we've been thinking through how do you live the kind of authentic Christian life, the life of the believer, when we live in such a messy world, and where often there aren't easy answers. And so we've been wrestling with some of these psalms that reveal something to us of the reality of life, what it means to be godly in our response to having a God who is faithful and sovereign and compassionate, and yet a world that is broken and awful. And so we've reached the end of that series. Let me pray for us as we look at Psalm 145. And praise you, Father, that your word is living and active, that it cuts us open, that it reveals the motives, the reality of our hearts. It reveals to us what you're like. Thank you that we can freely read it together this morning. Thank you that we can study it, proclaim it. Help us please not to take that for granted. And help us please not to be simply hearers, but by your Spirit living in us to be doers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have to say, one of the genuine joys about being a part of this church here, of Magdalen Road Church, this little outpost of the body of Christ, is the diversity. We're diverse in all kinds of ways as a church. We've got different backgrounds and stories and experiences. We've got people who have been to university and done masters and done PhDs and people who left school at 16. Different ages and life stages represented Maybe people who have been Christians for decades and decades and decades and people who have been Christians just for a few months or, or perhaps wouldn't even call themselves Christians. Just looking in on things, just dragged along each week. Different nationalities and languages, many for whom English is not their first tongue. You struggle to keep up with me. But we've also got different personalities different temperaments, different dispositions, which means, to hugely oversimplify, generally some of us are positive and optimists. We're tiggers. We bounce around the place. And others generally are down. The glass is certainly half empty, if we can even see a glass. We're we're eels. And you see, when we come to psalms like this one, psalms that talk about praising God and exalting God and extolling his name forever, we're coming from very different places. So Tiggers, on the one hand, for whom life is often superb, but they love singing at church. The words of the songs and the hymns, they represent what's really going on in people's hearts. They reflect the feelings and the emotions that are there through the week. They fuel the praise that is already burning. And then there are eels. Life is generally disappointing. Could be better. And don't get on so well with singing at church. Often the songs aren't so much the fuel to praise God. They are the the fire lighters to start things off just to get a spark going. And yet what we have in Psalm 145 for this morning, the end of this series, I think is both. We have the fuel and the firelighters for praising God, whether it's easy for us or it's hard for us. This is a symphony of praise, whether we are Tiggers or Eeyores. 
This is a psalm designed to help us worship, praise, extol our King. So you see, that is the end of the psalm, verse 21. That is the conclusion, that is where it is all going. Psalmist says, David says, My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. It's application for King David and it's application for every creature, which I take it looking around this room includes you. You are part of that. He wants us to praise God and say, how does he get us there? How do we get to verse 21? Maybe how do we go from being cold and indifferent and hard-hearted and distant and don't really want to be here, thank you, to one who praises his name forever, verse 21. Well, just scan over it with me. And if this is a symphony of praise, then we've got three different groups represented. In, in one to three, I think you have David, the soloist, deciding to praise the Lord. Notice the eyes. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Every day, I will praise you. And then from four through to eight, you've got different generations remembering his deeds. The people of God actively telling one another, teaching one another, reminding one another what God has done. God's actions in history. And then nine to the end, the the picture broadens. And this final chunk, you've got everyone praising him for his compassion. So verse nine, the Words we have just sung, the Lord is good to all, he has compassion on all, his, on all he has made. And then that is worked out with the entirety of creation, first, first in, in big, broad schemes and then in quite personal ways, as the psalm ends. But all three sections leading us together towards praise of God, whatever our temperament and personality, if we're, if we're Tiggers or Eeyores, this is designed to fuel and ignite worship in us. So first section, one to three. David the soloist deciding to praise God. Here he is in the middle. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. But notice this as we start. We mustn't miss this. It is a decision for him. Foundationally, David decides to praise God. It's as if he sat down and he's looked at his life and he makes that call, I will exalt you, I will praise you, every day I will praise you. It's an act of the will, it's a choice that he makes. He's not just going to slide into it. He decides to praise. But we say, how does he know what Tuesday is going to bring? Or how the meeting's going to go on Thursday? How does he know he will feel like praising God? It's a great question, isn't it? Because praise is always a response. So you're, you're watching match of the day and you see West Brom score and there is an automatic response. It's not just surprise, but it is praise. It is excitement. Or you're listening to an amazing piece of music and it's not something you have to decide to do. You respond in praise to something brilliant or a bite of that extraordinary cake or whatever it is for you. What is it that makes you praise in your life? So here's the problem. If David decides to praise every day of his life, 
And praise is always a response to something, but he doesn't know what is coming up. He doesn't know if life is going to be difficult or uncertain or challenging. How does David know he's going to extol and exalt God tomorrow or in six weeks' time? Or when life is really hard? How does he know? Because God does not change. And so verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Do you see how he can be so sure that he is going to praise day by day by day? It's because he knows his God. He knows what he's like. He knows how amazing he is. And he he believes it. Not just a creed for him or something he's supposed to believe or say, but he actually believes it. He believes that God is great, and so he will praise him. I think that's the initial question for us as we start. We can't really move on from that one. Are you with David? Have you decided to daily praise God? To exalt him, to extol him? Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's going on in life, regardless of the stress at work or the mess of life. And and this summer we have seen some really low psalms. We've traveled through darkness. We've, We've cried out with them in the midst of the mess. But even in the midst of the mess, God is still great. And David says every day he will praise. Can I urge you to make that call for the rest of life? However many days you might have left. Maybe it's something to take on board after the summer break, the start of a new academic term, academic year. Perhaps it's the breakfast table each morning with your housemates or your family or on your commute to work. Just an opportunity to praise God for his greatness, for what he is like. Remembering what he's like and praising him because of what he's like. Perhaps before all the stress of the day crowds in. Remember him. And Andy and Alison, as you begin your ministry among us today and for the next few years, can I urge you to daily decide to praise him? Build your life and your ministry upon remembering his greatness because there will be frustrations and there will be difficulties and it will be hard at times. Your boss will get grumpy. But God is still great. And he is still good. And friends, if we're to be a church that is filled with people of those who praise God, we need to be those who decide to praise him daily. It just doesn't come naturally, does it? We won't just slip into it. Now, we need to make the plan. And if we're those kinds of people, making those kinds of decisions to praise God each day, I take it that will change the kinds of things that we talk about. The topic of our conversations, the the stuff that we remember and focus upon, which is then exactly how David develops his thoughts. So the next concentric circle out in the orchestra Verse 4 to 8 is generations in the church remembering God's deeds. So I'm going to read 4 to 7, and I want you to notice what the topic of conversation is as I read it. 
What are the lips of the generations discussing? One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. What's the focus? It's it's what God has done. His works, his acts, his deeds, his track record. They're not praising because they kind of work something up in themselves. They're praising because they remember what God has done, what he's done in history. Maybe for them, the rescue from Egypt. Maybe as he leads them through the wilderness, maybe providing for them, being patient with them, protecting them. Maybe the victories that he won for them, the land he promised to them and he gave them, the blessings he poured out upon them. You see what it means? It means we mustn't let what God has done be forgotten. Sometimes I wonder if we just don't praise because we don't remember. To talk about them. Remind each other of them. It's one of the things we'll see in the weeks to come as we go through 2 Timothy through the autumn. We'll be thinking about the generational nature of the Christian faith, the generational nature of church. One generation tasked with telling another. Taking very seriously that call to pass on the information, to pass on the truths, to, to be those who speak good news to the generation below. And so here, it's why we've got 40 to 50 to 60 children that way in junior church, engaging in this exact activity. But two hours a week is not enough. Parents, parents prioritize telling your children the truth. Teach them the Bible. Teach them Jesus. Invest in them. Show them. Prioritize the privilege that you have to pass on the truth to the next generation. But not just parents. Generations in the church as well. Older generations invest in the younger generation. Pass on the truths. Pass on the news about God's deeds, his acts, his works, of what he's done, of what he's like. Do you see what God has done shows us what he's like? So if I were to look at your diary for the coming month, I could tell you a fair bit about you, about the kind of person you are, the things that... Take up your time, the things that you care about, the things that matter to you, things in your life. Better still, if I can see your journal and what you have done, can see what you've actually been up to, it's not just hypothetical, it's real, possible. Well, how much more with God? The problem is with the diary and the journal illustration is that we often don't have freedom to decide what we do. People impose stuff on us. God has the freedom to act in a way that is in accord with who he is. What he does reflects what he's like. And so David describes these deeds, these acts, and then he describes them, verse 5, of speaking of the glorious splendor of his majesty. Or verse 7, they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. And so verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. 
You see, if we want to be a church that's known for praising God, then we need to be a church that remembers his acts and his deeds, what he has done in history. Someone here recently told me they were reflecting on this idea in verse 8, that God is rich in love. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? What does it mean to be rich in love? Like it's, it's lavish. It's not stingy. It's overflowing. It's generous. God has a generous heart. Love pours out. That is our God. And so particularly for us, I take it we remember the cross. The cross of the Lord Jesus. That is the work, the deed par excellence that reveals who he is, what he's like. It's why we sing about it so much at church. It's why we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper shortly. So you remember Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. It's why we can never move on from it. Because it's there that we see verse 8. It's in the cross that we see his love and grace and compassion. But it's there that we see his anger too. You see, he is slow to anger, but he is angry at times. I take it love is rightly angry at times. If we're not ever angry, then we must question how much we love that person. Picture the scene. It's hypothetical. A father walks into a bedroom to find his preschool son, whom he's already warned and whom he loves very much, playing in his bedroom with matches. The father is going to be angry with the son because he loves him. Of course he is. He's warned him. He's told him. He loves him. If he wasn't angry with him, we might question how much he really loves him. Well, so our good God loves the world that he made He loves his people. He hates that it is ravaged by sin. And so he must be angry with that sin. If he wasn't angry, if he didn't care that much, we'd question how much he loves, wouldn't we? But here's the beauty. The beauty is the cross. At the cross, Jesus represents his people. And so he's punished instead of them. Verse 8, you see it in action. His right anger and his costly love. I want to say, if you're somebody who's not seen the generosity of God before the, in that way, who's not put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus, who doesn't know this God who is compassionate, abounding in love, I'd urge you to trust him today. However long you've been coming to Morden Road, however old you might be, trust him today. Run to him. Give your life to him. If you don't know this God who is gracious and compassionate and rich in love yet slow to anger, trust him today. And again, Mr. Taylor, as you work among us at Morden Road, I would urge you to build your ministry upon this kind of a God. 
someone who remembers what he has done and so points away from himself to God. Because the thing is, if you forget these words in verse 8, I can tell you from experience that your ministry will get skewed. Your priorities will go wrong. If you forget that he's gracious, if that gets removed from the equation, then God becomes a grumpy taskmaster. It becomes about you meeting a certain standard and filling your week with too much. Or it becomes about you trying to make other people behave in a certain way to fulfill certain standards because God is not gracious. It changes how you minister among us. If you lose sight of God being compassionate, then easily you focus on projects and tasks and to-do lists rather than people. Or you'll just love people from a distance, not really getting too messy. If you forget that he's slow to anger, either the anger goes and so God becomes the proverbial benevolent bearded grandfather who doesn't really care about sin or justice or pain or suffering, or he's quick to anger, he's always cross with you. Or even you become quick to anger. Your fuse becomes minuscule. And Andy, like your Father in heaven, pray that you would be rich in love. Generous, lavish, not stingy, because frankly, naturally, you won't be. That won't be you. That won't be any of us. Pray that you would increasingly love Maudlam Rose, as your Father in heaven does. And the thing is, if we lose any of those words from verse 8, for any of us, life becomes about competing and impressing people and anxiety and making the grade and our own little agendas and empires and trying to control things, rather than him and his ways and his kingdom. It's, it's so subtle, but it's so easy. So do you want to be a church that praises him daily? We... We choose to, but we're a church that speaks of his deeds often. The last bit of the psalm, though, the last half, if not more, it opens up. It's not just limited to those who believe and trust in him, but it's everyone, the final circle in the orchestra, everyone praising him for his compassion. So verse 9, have a look, verse 9 launches it off. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. But here's the thing. I can put it like this. God's goodness is to be evangelistic. So verse 12. Verse 12, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. You see, the Lord is good to all, he has compassion on all he has made, but where is that going? So that all people may know of his mighty acts. So that all people may know the kind of king that he is. God's plan has always been that the good news that he gives about him is like a little stone you drop into a pond and the ripples go right to the edge. So his people, his creation even, will point others to praise him. So that's there in 10 and 11. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. You see, what God has done, his works, isn't just to stay among believers, 
It's not to be a secret thing that we keep in this room. But his fame is to be heard of all around the world. So that all people may know of his mighty acts. It's, it's a privilege to be able to send people from here. We'll be sending people next week. We've returned people in the last couple of weeks. You see, God's fame is to be heard of all around the world. His promise to Abraham was to reach the ends of the earth. And so the praise that God's people have isn't to stay here, but to go out. We've already heard news of a meeting coming up in ten days for us as a church. Over the summer we've been considering what we're about as Magdalen Road, the things that matter to us, the possibility of buildings. And so verses like this are so helpful because it's easy for any church to become introspective. It's easy for any person to become introspective. We look in on our hearts. It's, it's something of sin almost. But you see, God blesses people so that the news might go out. It's actually a fascinating theme if you hunt through the scriptures. A corrective to the default setting of our hearts that wants to turn in on ourselves. A couple of examples. Isaiah looks ahead to a time of a, a servant. This servant, I the Lord, will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Or, or later on, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, God's promise, his blessing is to go out to the ends of the earth. And then the pages flick over and an old man sings over a baby. And he says, Sovereign Lord, as you promise, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon sings over baby Jesus. But then it goes on from there. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas speaking and hear what they say. They say, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see, we are the light of the world in Christ. We take his message, his works with us. And so Jesus says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So you see, as we think about buildings, as we think about who we are as a church, this isn't just about bricks and mortar, it's about our vision as a church, that, that others, that more people might come into contact with people who are extolling him, and speaking of him. That our, our lamp might not be under a bowl, but that we might shine more brightly, that people may know of his mighty acts, the glorious splendor of his kingdom. And you see, as we speak of him and as we live for him, so others are called in. And then the psalm begins to draw to a close. And David gets personal. David praises God, I take it for his faithfulness to him. 
David allows his words to become our words. This isn't just a psalm of nice theory and ideas or theology. This is real. This is David, I take it, who's been sustained through hard times, who recounts the stuff that he's gone through. This is David teaching us as one who's been taught himself. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. We've seen over the summer, David has been through the mill a number of times. He has genuinely been on the edge, fearing for his life. But the thing about hard times is that they teach us new reasons to praise God. Theory becomes practice. Hard times bring the academic into reality finding what God is really like. Not just written on a piece of paper, but written into our hearts. becomes truth for us. And so hear this. As you read 14 to 21, do you see yourself? Do you see some of the echoes of your own life, the difficulties, the struggles, the frustrations, the hardships? Then know this, know that our God is worth praising. He doesn't promise you an easy life. But he does promise that he will sustain you and uphold you when you fall. And he lifts you up if if you are bowed down and your life is crumbling and falling apart. And he provides just what you need when you look to him. He truly, lastingly satisfies you and your desires. He is near to you as you call on him. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears those who cry out to him and he rescues them. He watches over those who love him. But the wicked he will destroy. Because justice will come. He is slow to anger. But one day then anger will be seen. You see, this isn't just a psalm of ideas. This is reality. So why do we struggle to praise him? What is it that makes it so hard for us at times to extol praise, exalt him. We have so much to praise him for, but often it is so slow to come. I'm just not sure whether we believe him, whether we trust him, whether we remember him. What is the antidote to that? How do we become part of every creature praising his holy name forever and ever? How do we become a church known for praising God? 
when we make the decision, we decide to daily praise him, an act of the will. We remember together what he has done and what he is like. And we remember too, personally, how he's helped us in the past, how he has lifted our heads, how he has been there and provided what we've needed. And you see, when we're that kind of a church, then the message goes out. People hear of the God that we serve. Wouldn't it be extraordinary to be that kind of a church? To be famous for praising God? Let's pray. Our loving Father, we confess to you we have so many reasons to praise you. Your deeds, your acts, your works are so extraordinary. And they reveal to us the kind of God you are, that you are gracious and compassionate, that you are rich in love, that you are glorious. And yet, Father, we confess how slow we can be to praise you at times. Help us, please. Help us to make the call to decide to praise you each day. Help us to be a church, a family that speaks of your deeds and your acts, one generation to another. That we remind one another of the kind of God you are. Help us, please, to be a church full of real people who are honest about our struggles and yet see your trustworthiness and your faithfulness, that you keep your promises, that you uphold those who fall. And please help us then to be a church whose praise for you rings out from us. Thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Amen.